Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We have three cases for you today. The first involves a really important ruling out of the 11th Circuit where the court blocked South Florida's prohibition on conversion therapy for minors as unconstitutional. Next, we'll talk about transgender access to accurate passports. Finally, we'll talk about lesbian parents in Kansas and an important ruling from their highest court. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Are you hunkering down, ready for that nor'easter? Yeah, we're expecting it this afternoon, uh, but no snow days. <laughs> That's the, true. The, 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 only, the only worry is uh, will power be knocked out? We're, we're told that there could be high winds with this, and so people's power, especially outside of Manhattan, may be affected. And your students are taking online exams? today yeah so um, I, I sent them an email I said try to take the exam early before the storm hits just in case power goes down you won't get stuck you know oh you couldn't postpone art that's not my venue that's up to the registrar's office yeah and then there's a domino effect because there are different exams scheduled every day so if, if we postpone there's problems because their criminal law exam is supposed to take place a few days from now Nope, got to get it done. Art's right. ready to hand out those A pluses. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish them all good luck if you're taking exams right now to all our law student members, whether you're in Art Leonard's class or not. Um, so Art, I want, we have three really important cases. One is a pair of cases, um, but topics to talk about as usual here on the Law Notes episode of the podcast. But I thought maybe, you know, we've heard a lot about the Supreme Court oral argument that happened right after the election, November 4th. Um, so maybe you could give us a little bit of, we wanna have your take on what happened. Can you give us a little bit of what you thought, what your big takeaways were from Fulton v. City of Philadelphia at the Supreme Court? Okay, well, I was, I was actually unable to listen to the live uh, argument, but I was able to go and listen to the recorded argument and to look at the transcript. And it seems to me that, uh, as usual, when you're listening to Supreme Court arguments, although not invariably, but as usual, uh, you can't really tell what's going to happen uh, based solely on the questions and the comments, especially in this new format that they have since they've gone virtual where Chief Justice Roberts just calls on each justice in turn in order of seniority and gives them like a few minutes and then cuts them off in mid-sentence sometimes. Uh, so you don't get this repartee between the judges uh, because you know sometimes when you were uh, watching or listening to a Supreme Court argument before they went online, uh, a lot of the signals you got were the justices reacting to each other reacting to each other's questions and interrupting each other and talking over each other and all this sort of thing. And you could read tea leaves and it's, it's much more difficult now. But it seemed to me from listening that this case may turn on distinctions that very few people were thinking about before it was argued. For example, whether this was a situation of the city licensing the agency to perform these functions or contracting with the agency to act to provide services to the city. 
and it seems to me that this it's a sort of hybrid situation there because under the law you can't screen and certify parents potential pa uh, foster parents unless you had a contract with the city so in a sense uh, you had to be licensed in the context of being a contractor and in order to be a contractor you had to meet the city's contracting requirements which includes having a non-discrimination policy and so then the question comes in whether there's a first amendment right of a religious organization to be a contractor uh i mean you would think no one has a right to be a contractor the city has a right to decide who they're going to contract with to perform services for them but on the other hand they can't discriminate on a basis forbidden by the constitution when they're deciding whom to contract with and uh, in this case they would be discriminating based on religion and the supreme court has started taking a pretty tough line on situations where the government discriminates in contracting on the basis of religion uh, we've, we've had cases now stating that uh, if you're going to set up a scholarship program you can't exclude religious schools from it things of that sort uh, the uh, the Supreme Court majority has really been activating the free exercise clause and downplaying the establishment clause and we may be set up for that in this case uh, another point is when, when you have discrimination on the basis of religion you're going to get strict scrutiny of the policy and of, and of its application in a particular case and the question is whether the city had a compelling justification for refusing to renew the contract with Catholic Social Services to perform this function. And the evidence before the court, and I could see it resonating in some of the questions and answers, is there were 30 agencies in the Philadelphia metro area that had contracts with the city. Only one or two of them were religious agencies that were really hanging tough on this issue of same-sex parents. So the argument goes, there isn't a compelling interest to exclude Catholic social services if same-sex couples who want to do this can go to another agency and get certified. So, you know, there are so many ways that this could play out. Uh, this, I mean, that argument always just strikes me as if you applied it in any other context like race, uh, where you said, well, you can go to a bunch of other restaurants, just not this one. Um, we would be like, that's absolutely not something we'll put up with. And I certainly agree. And, and that's why this is such a dangerous case. This is a case where the court has handed an opportunity to sort of rip a big hole in anti-discrimination policies. And uh, we can see that in the last few months of the Trump administration, they've been rushing to adopt regulations, basically authorizing people to do that sort of thing. Uh, government contractors, uh, people who get government financial assistance, people who would normally be bound under existing executive orders not to discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Now the Trump administration is rushing out regulations to say, oh, but if you have a religious reason for doing it, we're not going to disbar you. We're not going to uh, preclude you from having a government contract. We're not going to cut off your government funding. And uh, lawsuits are being uh, launched to challenge this. But the incoming Biden administration is going to be walking a tightrope here, too deciding how to deal with these these are like hot potatoes to deal with uh, because uh, you know there is constitutional protection for free exercise of religion but there's also a ban on establishment and there's a question that many of us have the degree to which you privilege religious organizations especially if you privilege certain religious organizations and not others uh, you know you might have an establishment issue there uh, the government's supposed to be neutral so 
we'll see how it plays out. We're not going to find out right away. I can't imagine that the court isn't going to be sharply divided on how to decide this case. I would hope that there's even a possibility of a plurality opinion rather than a majority opinion so we don't get a really firm precedent that will crush us. Uh, and from the questioning, it seems that not all of the conservatives are necessarily lined up in lockstep on this issue. And what we've been discovering, as we did with the Bostock case, there is daylight between even Trump's appointees on some of these questions that uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh took diametrically opposed views of how to do textual analysis of a statute in that case. So we can't really predict how this is going to come out. Okay, well, I want to get right into our cases that we're going to talk about today. The first one, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit decided in the case of Otto v. City of Boca Raton that bans that prohibit licensed therapists from performing conversion therapy on minors violate the therapist's right to freedom of speech under the First Amendment. This decision is at odds with at least two other circuit courts that have upheld these bans. According to the Trevor Project, in a 2020 national survey, 10% of LGBT youth reported undergoing conversion therapy, with 78% reporting it occurred when they were under the age of 18. Youth who reported undergoing conversion therapy reported more than twice the rate of attempting suicide in the past year compared to those who did not. Conversion therapy is widely opposed by prominent professional medical associations, including the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Art, tell us about this uh, panel decision where we have two Trump judges who were in lockstep uh, striking down conversion therapy bans in Florida. Okay, well, the first thing to reassure everybody, this was not a final ruling on the merits. This was an appeal by two conversion therapy practitioners who were challenging uh, in two separate uh, decisions, actually, challenging uh, the ordinance adopted by the city of Boca Raton and an ordinance adopted by Palm Beach County. Uh, very similar ordinances uh, creating penalties for uh, licensed counselors and healthcare practitioners who perform conversion therapy on minors. Uh, obviously, uh, local governments do not uh, license these people. They're licensed by the state. And so they can't take away their licenses. Only the state can do that. Uh, so what they did was they set up a regime where there would be fines. Okay. Now, these conversion therapy practitioners said, we provide our therapy solely through speech. And therefore, the First Amendment freedom of speech should apply. And uh, when the First Amendment uh, freedom of speech applies, to an attempt by the government to regulate speech because of its content and because of its point of view, uh, that gets the highest level of scrutiny. That gets strict scrutiny. That's their argument. Now, similar arguments were made when the New Jersey law was challenged, when the California law was challenged. In the Third Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, the courts took the position, this isn't really regulation of pure speech. This is regulation of something that is called a therapy. It's a licensed healthcare practice. And traditionally, the states have played a role in regulating the provision of healthcare. And so this is conduct, that providing this therapy is conduct and the speech that occurs 
in doing it is professional speech, not political speech, not artistic speech. Uh, it's not commercial speech either. It's professional speech and that the state regulates professional speech. Uh, for example, the Code of Professional Responsibility for Lawyers regulates what lawyers can say and imposes penalties for saying things you're not supposed to say. And a lot of people have been suggesting that the lawyers who've been representing the Trump campaign in these frivolous lawsuits should, you know, some of the things they've been saying should subject them to professional discipline. Well, same thing here. The idea is that uh, this is professional speech. And that argument, uh, especially in the Third Circuit case involving the New Jersey law, that argument was uh, embraced by the courts of appeals in those circuits. But this three-judge panel was latching on to uh, what could be called dicta in an opinion by Judge, Judge Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court in uh, a case decided in 2018 called National Institute of Life Advocates versus Becerra. This was uh, National Institute of Life Advocates is an organization that operates these so-called reproductive health clinics that don't provide abortion and birth control services. Uh, and there's a lot of them in California and the state passed a law that said, if you're running one of these programs, you have to provide information to your clients about birth control and abortion services that are available elsewhere. Okay, that was challenged on the grounds that it was compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment. And California defended it by saying, no, we're regulating professional speech. We're saying things that you as a, as a healthcare practitioner have to say to your patients, information you have to give. And the Supreme Court rejected that argument in, in an opinion by Justice Thomas. And he said, there is no separate category of professional speech. Speech is speech. All speech is entitled to the protection of the First Amendment. And an attempt by the government to regulate speech on the basis of its content or viewpoint is subject to strict scrutiny. So you have to have a compelling state interest and your uh, regulation has to be narrowly tailored to do as little burden on speech as is necessary to accomplish your compelling justification. Okay, so now this three judge panel comes along and oh, and I should mention that Justice Thomas specifically stated disapproval of the Third and Ninth Circuit decisions in the conversion therapy cases uh, for relying on the concept of professional speech. So along comes this new panel and they say, well, you know, Justice Thomas says that uh, it's all the same speech is speech as long as the plaintiffs are alleging. And at this point in the litigation, uh, this was litigation over a preliminary injunction that they sought. So all we have are their allegations really at this point. And their allegation is their therapy is provided solely through speech. And it's clear on its face that these ordinances regulate the speech based on its content, its subject matter, its viewpoint. Uh, and therefore, the majority of the panel says, this is a strict scrutiny case. And in a strict scrutiny case, the issue whether is the state has a compelling justification. Well, they said they would have a compelling justification if the legislative record was sufficient to support the idea that conversion therapy is harmful to minors. All right, that's the conclusion that the city council in Boca Raton and the county uh, legislature in Palm Beach County, that's the conclusion they reached after reviewing the professional literature and hearing expert testimony. Uh, and you've summarized it for us. Uh, but we are not persuaded by that, said the majority 
uh, in an opinion by Judge Britt Grant. Uh, she said, you know, we read through these reports and things and we see a lot of assertions, but we don't see a lot of evidence. We don't see carefully conducted scientific studies that meet any standard of rigor. But this is really opinion. It's professional opinion. And we don't think that's enough to meet the test of a compelling interest to outlaw the provision of this therapy to minors. All right, the dissenting judge, uh, Judge Beverly Martin, who was appointed by Barack Obama, she says, well, just a minute, just look, all these professional associations are all lined up condemning conversion therapy, saying that it's harmful, uh, documenting. And she said, these reports document uh, things like the uh, statistic you cited about uh, about suicide or attempted suicide by uh, youngsters who are subjected to this. So she said, you know, I agree that this is uh, a case where the state or the, the government has to show a compelling interest. I feel they've done so. I feel they've done so here. They have shown a compelling interest. And uh, the only way that you can meet this interest that you can protect minors is to prohibit the procedure. So she would have allowed the injunction. But the point is, this case goes back to the two district courts uh, that had the cases with instructions from this panel that they are supposed to issue the preliminary injunctions. But then the litigation continues. And so the next step, assuming the litigation continues, is that these jurisdictions have to come in and they have to persuade these district judges that, in fact, there is a compelling justification here, which can only be achieved by, uh, by deterring. This is basically about deterring the practitioners from performing this procedure, because we're not making it a crime. We're not putting them in jail. We're fining them. And these localities can't take away their licenses. I mean, we can issue injunctions against them and then maybe we can prosecute them for contempt if they continue you know but there are limitations to what a local government can do to enforce something like this uh, so in the meantime there's a strategic question faced by uh, Boca Raton and Palm Beach County do we try to get on bank review and at the time uh, I was writing this article for law notes and sending it to you guys I didn't know what the answer to that was uh, but I speculated that it would be very hazardous because there are 12 active judges on the 11th Circuit and six of the 12 were appointed by Trump. And one of the 12 was appointed by George W. Bush. So there's a Republican majority. The remaining four were appointed by Obama and Clinton. Uh, but, you know, on-bank review, I don't know how we're, how we're going to do on on-bank review. Uh, and, uh, in fact, in talks with uh, with a, an attorney who uh, is very much on top of the issues down in Florida, he said, we're working hard to try to persuade them not to apply for on-bank because we don't want this three-judge panel decision to be reaffirmed on-bank. But uh, it seems there's, there's a press release sent out by Liberty Council, which is representing uh, plaintiffs here. And, uh, and said, oh, yes, the, uh, you know, Boca Raton and Palm Beach County have asked for a hearing on bank. So there is an on-bank uh, request pending. I checked the court's website today before we went uh, to start recording this, and there's no decision yet on on-bank, at least posted on the website yet. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, also, very great hesitancy about uh, uh, going to the Supreme Court with this. Uh, in light of what Thomas wrote in the NIFLA case uh, two years ago. So 
you know, this campaign to pass these laws around the country on both the state level and local level has been making great progress. But that could be a, a terrible setback if uh, the idea spreads that this is a violation of the First Amendment. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on that case and you'll keep us updated. But let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about transgender access to accurate passports. Okay, we're back. Oliver Norris is a transgender man who lives in Nevada. He applied for a passport in 2018, but his application was flagged because the gender marker didn't match his birth certificate. The State Department sent him a letter saying that he needed to send us a signed original statement on office letterhead from your attending medical physician with language stating that you have had appropriate clinical treatment for transition to the new sex. He sued, of course, and last month, the Nevada District Court judge ruled that the State Department violated his equal protection rights by refusing to issue a passport identifying him as male unless he could provide a doctor's certification of clinical treatment for gender transition. This is a great decision, Art. Tell us about this case. Okay, this is, this is an interesting case. And the State Department has generally been pretty good about issuing passports uh, with the appropriate gender marker on them, uh, unless you wanted an X. You know, they're, they're still litigating about the issue of the uh, person who uh, rejects the gender binary and wants to be given a neutral marker. But uh, on the issue of transgender, if you provide them with proof of transition, they'll issue you the new passport, you know. And uh, even in this case, I mean, even though uh, Morris has not gotten a new birth certificate. Birth certificate still says female. Uh, they're willing to issue a male uh, passport if he will document that he has surgically transitioned. But the point is here, whether he wants to or not, and a lot of transgender people don't surgically transition. It's expensive and health insurance doesn't necessarily cover it. Uh, there's ongoing litigation about whether Medicaid and Medicare have to cover it. Uh, in this case, he has health insurance. It doesn't cover it. It does cover hormones. Uh, he transitioned uh, with hormone treatment uh, with a nurse practitioner supervising. He does not have a physician who can write a letter certifying under oath that he has received clinical treatment for gender transition because he hasn't. And uh, he has a name change. And the state of Nevada accepts him as a man. He's got a new driver's license. He's got a court order. Uh, when you apply for a passport, you're required to present three items of official identification. And so he sent them a copy of his driver's license. He sent them a copy of the court order with the name change. And he sent them his original birth certificate. And the State Department looks at it and they say, well, hold on a minute. The birth certificate says female and the other document says male. We got to resolve this. And that's why they sent him the letter. And they're hanging tough on that. They're saying, you need this letter. So he goes to uh, federal court and uh, Judge Navarro looks at his due process argument and says, I don't think, I don't think you can win on the due process argument. Uh, she says, uh, his due process argument, and I thought it was a bit strained. He said, well, they're forcing me to undergo surgery in order to get a passport and that violates my right of privacy and autonomy, et cetera. 
And she says, no, they're not requiring you to do that. They're requiring you to get a letter from a doctor if you want to be get a passport that says that you're male. They're happy to issue a passport consistent with your birth certificate showing you as female. So they're not requiring you to have surgery to get a birth certificate. I thought that was a strange analysis myself. And I would have focused on Lawrence versus Texas as my precedent here, where uh, Justice Kennedy made a big deal about personal autonomy with respect to identity and things of that sort. And I remember reading Lawrence versus Thomas back in 2003 when the case came out. And I said, wow, this is going to be a great case for transgender rights. But I haven't seen people really citing it and relying on it a lot. But the discussion by the court of personal autonomy rights under the due process clause is uh, typical Kennedy flowery language, but it's very strong. On, on how the Constitution protects your right to your personal identity, in a sense. Uh, so she, she rejected his due process argument, but she turned to the equal protection argument and she said, okay, here we are in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, this is obviously discriminating on the basis of gender identity because they never ask cisgender people to verify their sex. They only ask transgender people to verify their sex. So if you have a rule that treats transgender people differently from cisgender people, you have heightened scrutiny in the Ninth Circuit. And that comes out of the Karnofsky litigation against the transgender military ban by Trump. And so in the course of that, we got, and I think very consequentially, we got a ruling by the Ninth Circuit in that case that heightened scrutiny applies to transgender discrimination. And that was reconfirmed in the Edmo case uh, the uh, prisoner who wanted a uh, sex change operation in prison. And once again, the Ninth Circuit comes in and says, well, heightened scrutiny here. The state has to have a, uh, an exceedingly persuasive justification. And we can thank uh, the late Justice Ginsburg for that language because she used it in the VMI case. Uh, if you're going to discriminate based on sex, you need an exceedingly persuasive justification because sex discrimination gets heightened scrutiny. Well, if gender identity discrimination gets heightened scrutiny, you need an exceedingly persuasive justification. And she says, I don't see that the State Department now has put forward an exceedingly persuasive justification as to why they need a doctor to certify that uh, this person has received clinical treatment as part of a gender transition. Now, there had been a third argument in the case as to whether the State Department was violating the Administrative Procedure Act by uh, creating this barrier to getting a passport administratively uh, on the, the argument that the statute doesn't expressly authorize them to do that. So that it was sort of uh, ultra virus in, in a sense. And the Administrative Procedure Act does say that when you're adopting rules and regulations and guidelines and things of that sort, it has to be within the scope of the statute that you that has authorized you to deal in this subject. And it's you know, a statute gives the State Department its directions on passports. Uh, but she said, I don't have to decide that because I've decided there's an equal protection violation. So the relief I'm ordering now makes the Administrative Procedure Act claim moot. And the relief that she's ordering is, uh, she says, the court orders defendant to review plaintiff's passport application without requiring a physician certification of plaintiff's gender. If plaintiff's application is otherwise sufficient under the relevant State Department regs, defendant shall issue plaintiff a 10-year passport. So complete relief here. Of course, the question is, is the State Department going to appeal this to the Ninth Circuit? Uh, they have a tiny window of opportunity in the Trump administration. Uh, the uh, 
uh, attorney general is stepping down on December 23rd. <laughs> the deputy attorney general is going to be the acting attorney general for about a month, a little less than a month. Are they going to initiate a new appeal here? Or are they going to leave this hanging for the Biden administration to decide what they're going to do? And I think that would be the better part of valor, but you never put anything past the Trump administration in extremis. We will see. We're not, it's not over until it's until over. Though so. So seeing Bill Barr leave was certainly a, 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 a moment of joy. Yes. All right. So that's a really interesting case, and we'll see what happens. We'll definitely update people. Uh, as the new administration takes over see if this is something that sticks. Um, All right, so let's take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to go to the middle of the country to talk about a really interesting parentage case. All right, we're back. In a pair of cases, the Kansas Supreme Court held that a woman who conceives through artificial insemination and her same-sex partner can both be deemed the legal parents of any resulting child born during their relationship under the state's parenting law. Neither couple was married, nor did either enter into any written co-parenting agreements respecting the children. These rulings broadly recognize the rights of lesbian co-parents in Kansas. According to the Williams Institute, 21% of same-sex couples in Kansas are raising children. That's in comparison to New York and California, where it's estimated to be closer to 16%. So this is an important ruling. It's an interesting ruling. Art, tell us about it. Yeah, so this is this is very interesting because uh, I mean it took New York a long time to come to this. You know, uh, only just a few years ago that New York uh, the Court of Appeals backed away from the old Allison D case, which basically said that the same-sex partner of the woman who gives birth is a legal stranger to the child and has no rights to seek custody or visitation. Well, Kansas is finally getting around to this, uh, and uh, the the issue basically is that although a higher percentage of same-sex couples are raising children in red states, in rural states, you know, rural gays are raising children in large numbers, not so many of them are getting married, you know? And uh, if they got married, it would be a different story. If they got married, then they could argue that the statutory parental presumption that the spouse of the birth mother is the legal parent of the child would take place, uh, even though you know, we've had to fight for that in many jurisdictions because of the gendered language of the domestic relations laws. Uh, but to take the next step and say that a same-sex couple that was living together but was not married, uh, that the partner of the birth mother is going to have some sort of parental rights, some sort of claim to parental rights. And this almost always arises in the context of the parents breaking up and the question whether the non-bio mom can still have contact, may have joint custody or may have visitation rights. Uh, So in this case, the court said that we're gonna look at the Kansas parenting statute and we're gonna give it a broad realistic interpretation. And the question is gonna be the same that we would ask if it was an unmarried different sex couple. Has the non-biological parent held themselves out as a parent, recognized their status as a parent, uh, established a relationship with the child, 
was there combined finances? Were, did the parties work together on the pregnancy? Uh, you know, all of these sorts of things that many other states have done. To see this coming out of the conservative Kansas Supreme Court uh, is, is quite a step. And, you know, this is slowly but surely happening uh, around uh, the, the so-called red states. Some states delightfully in this year's presidential election flipped from red to blue. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a vast part of the country in the Midwest, in the, in the South, where uh, they're coming later to deciding these issues than on the coasts or, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, et cetera. Uh, so this is a major step to get these two, two decisions out of the Kansas Supreme Court. And the court made clear all we're deciding at this point because the trial courts had said, no, these uh, – these former partners have no standing, you know, they have no claim. Uh, they said they were asking the wrong questions. They were asking the wrong questions. We're going to send these cases back. And uh, looking at the facts of each relationship and the nature of the relationship and the role that the partner played with respect to planning for having the child and uh, going through the birth process and uh, finances and all this sort of thing, it's all going to weigh in and as a practical matter, Ultimately, the courts can decide whether it's in the best interest of the child to maintain that relationship. And we're going to treat them the same as we treat heterosexual relationships. Uh, so this is a big, big step. Uh, very important cases. Uh, in Ray MF and In Ray WL, both from November 6th. Uh, anyone who's, who's really interested in family law and LGBT family law in particular should probably be worth looking at them. They're available on, on Westlaw and Lexis. Thank you so much. Wow, what a, a, a range of issues that we're covering. And this is just, you know, the three cases that we picked out, but transgender prisoner litigation, all sorts of um, really important, uh, even the, the trans military ban cases still have some rumbling. Every, every month we get one or two new rulings out of Judge Peckman from the uh, Federal District Court in Washington in the Karnosky case. There were two more this month. We sort of relegated them to a civil litigation note because that case may become moot when Biden comes in. Uh, unsure the degree to which it will be mooted by just reversing the policy because the plaintiffs may have damage claims or you know there may be other things to be. But as you mentioned in the Ninth Circuit, it's already done some good with respect right. to the huge ruling uh, application of strict scrutiny to claims of transgender discrimination. So, uh, and I have I, a closing of note item if you'd like oh, to hear. Oh, I'm not going to let you off the hook. You're going right. to give us our of note. I'm not slamming the door just yet. Our, okay. What do you have for me? For what I have on December first. It was announced that the Equal Opportunity Commission and the RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes have reached a settlement Ooh. in Amy Stevens' case. Yeah. Now you remember Amy Stevens was uh, the transgender woman who was working as a funeral director for the Harris Funeral Homes in the Detroit suburbs. Uh, and she went to the EEOC. The EEOC, uh, which had then just recently come around to the idea that gender identity discrimination is covered under Title VII, they filed suit on her behalf. And uh, she won in the Sixth Circuit. And her case went up to the Supreme Court uh, and was consolidated with the Bostock case and with the Zarda case from New York, the Bostock case from Georgia, and this, this case was out of Michigan. 
and the Supreme Court held that gender identity discrimination is covered by Title VII. So the case gets sent back down uh, to see whether, uh, you know, what the remedy should be. The problem is that by the time the decision was announced, unfortunately, Amy Stevens had passed away. Uh, so in uh, doing a settlement agreement, the EEOC uh, held out for money for her estate and for attorney's fees because Stevens did uh, intervene in the case and the ACLU represented her and the ACLU should get you know, reimbursed for their expenses in representing her. And furthermore, there was, a, there was a third issue in the case which wasn't in the Supreme Court appeal but was in the lower court decision. And that was that Harris Funeral Homes discriminated between male and female employees with respect to its uh, clothing allowance policy. So, under the terms of the settlement, the estate gets $130,000 in back pay and compensatory damages, $120,000 in attorney's fees, and a little uh, sum of $3,705 will be divided up among the female employees of the Harris Funeral Homes to compensate them for being undercompensated or denied compensation for buying the clothing necessary to comply with the funeral home's dress code. I mean, they were subsidizing men, but not women, in complying with the dress code. Uh, and, and so uh, there's, there's a little pot of money for that as well. So Amy Stevens continues to do justice for the employees, uh, for her fellow employees there at the Posthumously, head. yes. Well, yeah, an ex, ex uh uh, former uh, colleagues, obviously. Yeah. Well, it's 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 wonderful that she was able to attend the oral argument. Yeah. Uh, but of course, she was left on tinderhooks. So what's going to happen? And uh, I know that uh, when the opinion came out on June 15, there was a lot of surprise by a lot of people that this very conservative Supreme Court uh, was going to come out with the decision they did. So it was really a major thing. It's uh, certainly the most important legal rulings of 2020 uh, in LGBT rights when we do our, our year in review program. Uh, I assume that's coming up in January or February uh, as, as usual. We'll, we'll, we'll do it virtually, but we'll do it. Uh, so uh, that's certainly going to be on the agenda. Absolutely. All right, Art. Well, thank you so much. Please uh, hunker down, stay stay out of the streets. Do not get, um, hopefully you have enough food and, and fresh water. Well, the, the storm doesn't hit here until the afternoon and we're recording this in the morning. So I'm planning to make one more grocery store run before noon. <laughs> Good for you. Okay, well, thank you so much. We'll be back next month with our uh, Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. Until then, I can't wait to see your face again, Art, and of course, for the year in review. We'll see you then, too. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found on iTunes, on Spotify, and on legal.podbean.com. We'll see you soon.